Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm your host, Mandy Johnston, and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. Now, we have a slight green hue to today's show. And why wouldn't we? Because it's St. Patrick's weekend after all. And the St. Patrick's Festival is in full swing. And that got us into a sort of festive mood and started us thinking about the growth of festivals in Ireland and the significant contribution that they now make, not just to our economy, but also to many towns and villages around Ireland. So I'll be joined in the studio by Falter Ireland's Festival Supremo and suitably named Kira Sugru. Later on in the show, we're delighted to welcome back Ireland's former ambassador to the US, Michael Collins, as he sheds some light on what's going on behind the scenes as preparations intensify for President Biden's visit to Ireland next month. And finally, we'll be delving into the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and how it could impact on the Irish and wider European economy. And can our so-called leprechaun economics avoid another economic storm? All that's coming up on today's show, so please stay tuned. And we love hearing from you, so you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, St. Patrick's Weekend is one of the biggest weekends of the year when it comes to tourism and it kicks off the seasons for many industries who now depend on tourism for their business and their wages. So what's the festival scene like in Ireland in 2023? Joining me now to discuss is Kira Sugru, who's Head of Festivals and Events for Falcher Ireland. Kira, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Oh, thank you very much. Delighted now, to be here. Kira, it sounds like a dream job, Head of Festivals and Events for Falcher Ireland. Uh, what's Falcher Ireland's involvement in the festival scene in Ireland? Well, festivals are hugely important for uh, tourism and really contribute towards, um, you know, as a, as a kind of a trigger to get people to travel to Ireland. So they're hugely important. And obviously, St. Patrick's Day is probably our biggest festival in terms of the numbers of people it attracts in. And it's very much the kickoff to the tourism season. So we're very involved with festivals, trying to bring people to Ireland. And festivals are a fantastic platform to showcase the best of Ireland. And our music, our culture, our heritage, and we do that through our festivals. Is there any kind of statistics that we can point to to how much that actually that contributes to our local economy here in Ireland? Yeah, well, we know St. Patrick's Festival in Dublin contributes about 50 million to the economy. And this weekend, of course, we kind of have a bumper weekend because not only do we have St. Patrick's, but we have the Six Nations and it's a a Grand Slam. So... We, we we haven't calculated that yet, but we will be doing that post-event and uh, we really think this will be a bumper weekend for Dublin. And it's something that Fulcher Ireland seems to be doing more and more of, like packaging entire weekends as festivals. We see, I think, it happening at Christmas as well, not just for um, St. Patrick's Day. So have you found that as a model, it's better to broaden out uh, the appeal over a period of time? Um, I, I think... Probably what you're referring to is that uh, for for um, to try and motivate visitors in the off season, we pull together a number of events um, and put it under a banner of winter in Dublin and bring together and using that as a platform to really showcase all the different types of events, live events in the city, uh, New Year's Festival, of course, being one of the hero events of the whole winter in Dublin. Um, so that that that's a kind of, I suppose, a marketing ploy to really use that to international audiences. And it's it's working really well. We saw occupancy grow um, in that period over 2019 figures. 
So we're really happy with the way that's working. And really, it's early days. It takes a number of years for any of these initiatives to really take effect. And with same with festivals, it takes three to four years to really get them where we want them to be and to get that kind of um, awareness internationally. Mm. I, I suppose maybe it's the generation I come from, I tend to think of festivals as music driven, you know, so Glastonbury, Electric Picnic, even the trip to Tip back in the yeah, 90s. Fela. <laughs> festivals are much different now, like beyond the the music festivals, mm-hmm. what other type of festivals do Fall to Ireland uh, promote and what are you involved in? What does really well for us here in Ireland? Well, we, I mean, to be honest with you, music is so much at the heart of so many Irish festivals. Uh, we have lots of different types of festivals, which would be literary festivals. Um, we have uh, the, the, the outing, which is a, a queer matchmaking festival. But music tends to be always in there somewhere um, because it is very much and it's associated with Irish and um, how we celebrate and how we enjoy ourselves, I suppose, at festivals. But there are so many different types of festivals. Uh, Dark Skies Festival, for what's instance. The, what's in, the Dark Skies Festival? It's, it's a celebration of the Dark Skies in Mayo and also in West Kerry, in South Kerry, where they have gold medals for how dark the skies are. And you literally are looking at the stars and enjoying and they build in all sorts of information around what, what you're looking at. They, they have telescopes and um, sometimes very quiet and maybe storytelling on the beaches as you're looking at this. Magic, absolutely magic festivals. Mm. Yeah, it's all very different, very diverse. You mentioned earlier a lot of this is about attracting people into the country. So is it targeting people to travel to Ireland or is it also something in terms of festival promotion, something that appeals to people here in Ireland? We know that people overseas, one of the biggest things that motivates them to come is the fact that they're with Irish people. They, they don't want to be at a festival where they're only meeting other visitors. They, they want to be engaging with Irish people. Most of our festivals, there would be about 50% local, 25% domestic, which would be people from outside the county, and then about 25% international. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, it is. It's really important that we have that mix because mixing with Irish people is what makes it an Irish festival. And that's, and, and that's what really appeals to them. Um, so, so that's that, yeah, that's, that's a really important aspect to it. And we need that mix. And, you know, another thing about the festivals, I suppose, is that for local areas, and I mean, there are literally thousands of festivals in Ireland. Um, we're, we're not involved in every festival by any means. Um, we, we're really focused on the ones that, that have the ability to motivate international visitors. Um, but, but they're really important as well for, for local, uh, communities. Um, for building civic pride and pride of place and all of those things. So they're a really positive thing right across the board. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm joined in studio by Kira Sugru's Head of Festivals and Events in Falter, Ireland. So that's all the really positive stuff, Kira, about what happens in festivals. Now let's look at the sort of logistics of, of putting on a festival, like, you know, what's involved there in terms of licensing? How does one go about doing that? Um, do you have a specific unit that's set up within Falter, Ireland to do this or where does one go? What's what's involved in uh, license, it, it very much depends on the type of festival you're doing and whether a license is required or not. Uh, generally, where there's over 5,000 
um, attendees, you need to you need to license it, and that's done through the local authority. But it would involve a lot of the other statutory agencies. Um, and before a license is issued. So applications have to be made and it has to go through a, a quite a rigorous process, um, particularly for larger events. And then, of course, you have all of the health and safety aspects, security, all of those things. Um, so it, an, an awful lot more goes into these things than people who are not involved in them ever, ever would realise. Absolutely. And, and I can only imagine that they're a very expensive endeavour from insurance point of view, from security. So you probably need to 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 be backing it with a lot of money before you start. Out. Yeah. And it's it's, you know, it's it's been, I suppose, post COVID costs have increased significantly. Um, and, you know, partly because some people have left the industry with the two year lockdown and Festivals were particularly hard hit, um, first to close and last to reopen. So it's it's been really difficult, but um, but it is really essential that all of those uh, pieces are in place and the kind of hygiene factors, as we would say, um, are in place because health and safety has to be at the core of it. Um, and I think for community festivals, it can be you know that that can be hard on them, um. But, you know, they, they, there's, a, there's a lot of supports there and the local authorities are, are really supportive of, of local events and help. We do provide a lot of backup support for the festivals in our portfolio uh, in terms of training, upskilling, in terms of marketing, um, where we've just released some, ish, some pieces on sustainability um, and some guidelines for festival organisers. And that's becoming a really big issue now. People are expecting to have, um, you know, that the festival is taking on sustainability in a big way. Yeah, a lot more awareness around. Yeah, like exactly. People wanting to get involved in ones that will, you know, support that transition to a lower, lower carbon society. So, so here we can't have a discussion about any kind of tourism in Ireland without looking at the issue of accommodation. How are things looking for you in the coming months ahead in terms of room numbers and capacity? It's certainly very challenging. Um, and more so in some particular areas than others. Um, it's obviously we're at a period now where a lot of hotels are renewing or choosing not to renew their contracts. So right now we're we're kind of in that middle ground and we're not sure. But I suppose a lot of the focus and the festivals that we work with, um, such as the Puka Festival, would be off season. And what we're trying to do is do them regionally. Um, very much so that we can spread the benefits of that um, across the different regions in the off season when there is capacity. Mm. I want to talk about the community nature of some of the festivals and obviously one of the most successful ones is Electric Picnic. But has we saw in COVID when that can't happen, how dependent an area can can become on a festival like that? Is there a danger there or just have you any values on how much something like Electric Picnic might be to that region? Um, we don't directly, we're not directly involved with Electric Picnic, so I don't have the figures on it. But it is certainly, it has a huge impact locally. And it's a really positive, you know, really positive and well received by the locals. But I suppose on a smaller scale, there are many festivals like that around around the, the country. And if you look at something even like Rose of Tralee and the impact that that has on North Kerry and the business in North Kerry. So, um you know, any any festivals like that, they absolutely deliver economic benefit in the restaurants, the bars, the pubs, the attractions, activity providers. Um, and, and that's another area that we've done a lot of work in in the last few years is that we're now working with a lot of 
um, of the participative events. So they're the outdoor events where people are actually taking part in an Ironman and kind of developing that, not just from an event, but into a festival so that people will stay an extra day, come a day early, stay an extra night and and get involved participating in those events. Mm. And that's proving really successful and is really a growing market. And Kira, if somebody wants to get a list of all of the festivals, is there some place they can visit? Uh, visit discoverireland.com. They're all listed there. And um, on specifically for Dublin, it's visitdublin.com. Uh, and as head of festivals and events, give us some recommendations. What ones would you tell us to check out? Oh my gosh, it's it's so hard because there's just so many fantastic festivals. But um, I suppose close to my heart would be the Puka Festival in Trim and Athboy. Um, a lot of people aren't aware that Ireland is the birthplace and the origin of Halloween. And uh, there's a fantastic lineup that happens over Halloween weekend. And um, it's, it's, it's something really unique to Ireland. Um, people are fascinated and there's such a curiosity internationally about the fact that this is something that started in Ireland and we actually exported. So we're reclaiming it. And, uh, and it's not only in that area, while the Puka Festival is there, there are lots of Samhain events around the country. And I think it's something that we should really celebrate and, and get involved in. And uh, I'd, I'd love to see people, more people get involved in that. Well, so lots of very imaginative festivals going on around Ireland. Can we wish you the best with the rest of your St. Patrick's Day Festival? And thank you for joining us today. That was Kira Sugru, who's Head of Festivals and Events in Falcher, Ireland. Many thanks. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. After the break, this week, all the speculation finally ended when US President Joe Biden confirmed he is to visit Ireland next month. So join me after the break as one of Ireland's most experienced diplomats gives us his take on what to expect from the upcoming visit. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Well, there's no amount of Seamus Heaney quotes that can sum up how excited the system in Ireland gets when an American president is about to visit. But getting them here and managing the visit itself is quite the diplomatic effort. I'm delighted now to be joined once again by one of Ireland's finest diplomats, former Irish ambassador to the US, Michael Collins. Michael, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thank you, Mandy. Good to talk to you again. Now, Michael, great news this week. Ironically, first revealed to Rishi Sunak, of all people, but President Biden finally confirming he's coming to Ireland in April. How important will this visit be for US-Irish relations? Oh, I think, um, Mandy, um, I think it's hugely important. It couldn't get more important than having the President of the United States uh, visit us. Uh, so the fact that he's coming, I think, uh, you know, first of all, we should never take that these, that these visits for granted or that they happen as a matter of course. They don't. A lot of work goes into making them happen, making sure the circumstances are right. And I think it's just it's just a bit to recall. I mean, there haven't been that many U.S. presidents here uh, in the history of, of, the, of the relationship. There's only been five actual formal visits from the United States to Ireland, uh, I think President Biden would be the sixth. So these things are rare enough. And don't forget the last occasion was was now all of 12 years back when President Obama came here in 2011. So they're extremely important. They are, they are, they really set the, set the uh, obviously they, they capture whatever the achievements are uh, over the last period, but more particularly they set a benchmark and, and, and kind of set a kind of a, a platform into which the relationship can be built into the future. Now, organising a trip like this um, and having it confirmed even, I would imagine, takes a lot of work in itself. As an ambassador, former ambassador to the US, how do you begin and when do you begin planting the seeds for a visit like this? Oh, well, I think it begins day one. I remember uh, particularly, obviously, I was there from day one with uh, President Obama 
And of course, we extended a formal invitation to President Obama on the first occasion that the Taoiseach uh, then met him in, uh, in March 2009. So it begins day one. Uh, so we're never slow with the, with the invitation uh, to the President uh, of the United States to come. It's another matter, of course, uh, delivering on that, that, uh, that and making, obviously, seeking to encourage that visit to take place. And these things can ca- take a little bit longer than you might imagine. They're complex. The President's schedule is extremely complex. And, I, you know, obviously, the uh, making it actually happen in reality and making, finding dates that actually work uh, can be a real, real challenge. I remember the last time, just not to be too anecdotal, the last time round when President uh, Obama came in, two, in May 2011, it was right back to back with the, with the royal visit of, of Queen Elizabeth. So, uh, you know, that was quite a logistical challenge. But the truth about the matter is any time is a good time for the President of the United States to visit. And obviously it's the job of diplomats to make sure that it does happen. Uh, because obviously uh, we have a very uh, special relationship with the United States and the visit of the president is captures that in a very, very real way. Yeah, and we'll get into the diplomacy and the timing of uh, President Biden's visit to the, to the island of Ireland in a moment. But can we just stick with the logistics for a second? Just how big um, an organisational task is this uh, from the state's perspective? What other agencies are pulled in to organise something like this visit, which could last for a couple of days, really? Well, uh, exactly right. And again, just to recall, President Obama, complicated knowledge as it was, only lasted less than a day. He didn't even overnight, um, as it turned out, in the end of the day. Uh, he, it all happened within the one day. This is, by all accounts, is going to be um, uh, anything up to uh, 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 five days long. So it's a huge operation. And, of course, there are all the... Um, uh, you know, all the agencies of the state would be involved, led, of course, primarily by the Taoiseach's department itself, the Department of Foreign Affairs, but, but not least, of course, at the end of the day, um, the, the security agencies uh, in, in the state here, as well, uh, liaising with their American counterparts. So it's all hands on deck. It's a huge operation, not just uh, is it a single location visit to Dublin? But obviously, you're looking at the prospect of uh, you know multi-locational uh, uh, visit as well to Carlingford, uh, to uh, to Mayo. Possibly, and indeed elsewhere as well. Uh, in addition to which, of course, he will be visiting Belfast. So this is absolutely complicated. The White House is on the move, and uh, it is an enormous operation involving thousands of personnel uh, on the American side, in particular, but of course a considerable number of personnel here uh, on the Irish side as well. So it will be all hands on deck, and it will be really, really uh, a big challenge, but an exciting one nonetheless uh, to make it all work smoothly, which of course will be the intention of everybody. Yeah, the timing of the the visit is is very important, obviously to mark the Good Friday Agreement anniversary, but you've worked for many years um, on the Northern Ireland issue and you're very aware of how difficult it can be to bring all of these parties together at any particular moment in time. So it's quite a difficult balancing act for President Biden in, in diplomatic terms. How do you think they'll be approaching this visit? Well, I think they want to come. I mean, it's very, very, it's been very clear for quite some time that the pre- president, um, the president Biden, wants to come here in, the, in the, at some stage during his first term. So I think, uh, but he, the circumstances had to be reasonably right, at least. And uh, the, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement was out there. Uh, you know, uh, it, the, the agreement needed to be in, in, in as good a shape as it could be, even if, it's, if the institutions aren't fully restored. So what happened in, in the Windsor framework and the negotiation of that really uh, was, was very, very important in, in enabling or facilitating. It wasn't the ultimate decider, but it, was, it, it certainly helped in facilitating uh, the visit. So uh, the president will want to come here and he will want to reinforce the peace process. He will not wish to come here, obviously, in circumstances that would be in any way divisive. He will want to steer an even course as best he can. Of course, he's, a, he's an Irishman through and through. 
uh, and, and very committed to all of that. But he will want to support the process and he will want to encourage everybody. But it won't be with a big stick or anything like that. Of course it won't. Uh, but uh, so the, the, the aim is obviously to celebrate what has been achieved, lest we forget it. And I don't think we would ever forget what an achievement the Good Friday Agreement is, to celebrate all of that and to try and nudge it along, I suppose, and bring the, the parties back into the, into the institutions again. Of course, the DUP are not yet committed to returning by any means, uh, but hopefully they're, being, they're moving along a road which ultimately will bring them there and we'll see the, uh, the agreement fully restored. The Americans are enormously proud of, of, of the Good Friday Agreement and their role in all of that. And of course, we are enormously uh, committed uh, to making sure that we, we celebrate that contribution that the United States made because they were the factor and they are the factor which can make a huge difference uh, in, in sustaining peace with the island of Ireland, both in terms of the peace itself, but the economy that would underpin that peace as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to former Irish ambassador to America, Michael Collins, about the upcoming visit of President Biden to the island of Ireland. You mentioned there, Michael, um, the DUP and there is always a potential uh, for, you know, divisiveness uh, around things like bringing them along um, on a journey with you, which which you will have been part of on many occasions. But this visit uh, by President Biden to Northern Ireland and to the Republic of Ireland, um, he won't be on his own. There's other presidents uh, visiting as well. President Bill Clinton coming, um, Hillary Clinton coming. It is, as you say, a very real sign of how much store they place in their contribution to the Good Friday Agreement and how much yeah. they value peace. So over over the years, you've obviously witnessed interventions by them at key parts. Can you just talk us through maybe some of the times when they've been key players in in assisting the effort for peace on this island. Well, I think I mean obviously you know the uh, successive presidents going back as far as indeed uh, uh, President um, uh, Carter, uh, and we obviously sent him our best wishes at this stage. But uh, President Reagan obviously had 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 a kind of a, a special relationship with with, with with Mrs. Thatcher, which you know in the end of the day he was prepared to talk to her in ways which uh, made a difference. But the real breakthrough, I suppose. I know undoubtedly came when uh, President Clinton decided to uh, appoint a special envoy, uh, George Mitchell, uh, uh, to to the peace process, and really it took off from then. And uh, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, that has been sustained since then, and in tribute also to George Bush. I remember going to Belfast with former teacher Bertie Ahern on an occasion when when George Bush visited there. Again, he was there for other purposes, but again, he he nudged the parties along. He met all the parties. Uh, and then, of course, President Obama was, was, was helpful in his own way as well. But President Biden is a little bit more unique because, I mean, of all the presidents, um, and that would almost include President Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, you know he, he feels extraordinarily Irish. And I, I think he, he, you know, he says, I assert, he asserts uh, very, very clearly, he says, I am Irish. And I, I, his whole purpose is to uh, obviously to support the, the process. And it really, really is important, not just to the United States, but to him personally, uh, that the United States should be at the, at the wheel on this particular thing, supporting the two governments, but also obviously um, encouraging the parties along uh, the, the way as well. So their, their role is a supportive one, to give the, the nudge and to give the support every now and then, to appoint a special envoy, as they have done in the case of former Congressman Joe Kennedy, all of which, again, and we might think, well, that's all, that's all part of our, what we're due. But these things are, are not done lightly. And they do make a difference. And if you're an American business person uh, uh, looking to invest in Europe or elsewhere, particularly at a time when you know, governments are, and including the United States, are seeking to repatriate an awful lot of investment, here's a big signal. 
that the island of Ireland is one that has a very, very special relationship with the United States. One, uh, that the President of the United States is prepared to celebrate, not just over one day or over two days, but apparently uh, over no less than five days on the island of Ireland. So that is all fantastically welcome, and we should never, ever take it for granted that we should work and might and main to make sure that we protect that relationship and give him the welcome that he he and the United States deserve. Mm. Just one, I suppose, fly in the ointment is that the Assembly uh, is is not up and running and, and sitting for this visit as of now. It's quite embarrassing not to have that here for, for such dignitaries visiting the island. Do you think that this impending visit could do anything to accelerate the re-establishment uh, of the Executive and the Assembly? Well, um, again, I mean, the DUP uh, in particular will, will obviously, they're going through a process of scrutinising the, um, the, the Windsor framework and that may take another little bit of time. And obviously they have some hesitation, to put it mildly, in relation to uh, the deal that's been, that's been negotiated and, and, and agreed. Um, I, you know, the, the, so clearly for the moment they're, they're, they're made unconvinced and they may need to wait until a little later, probably after the May elections, before they come to some final determination. Uh, but I, I think I think they, uh, it, it's a little bit disappointing, obviously, that, that we were not back up and running. The, the, the Windsor framework should have allowed the institutions to be re-established. Obviously, a little bit more work is obviously required to persuade the DUP that, that this is a, a good deal, a good deal for uh, for, the, for, 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 for Britain, a good deal for Northern Ireland, a good deal for everybody indeed. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a little bit disappointed. It needn't be, it needn't be any reason why we, we shouldn't uh, you know, celebrate the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement uh, is obviously uh, going to transcend all of this and it's going to endure. It's just a question of timing more than anything else as to when uh, it all gets back into place again. But the visit, uh, obviously, again, will help consolidate the fact that the agreement is there and there to stay and obviously, um, more work may need to be done uh, to persuade the DUP uh, to come back into the uh, to the executive. But I think hopefully it's only a matter of, of time. Uh, but the visit will certainly should do no harm and certainly could do an awful lot of good. And finally, Michael, before I let you go, it's not just about the Americans coming here. We also go there. Very successful visit, would you say, this week by Ireland uh, to the White House and Capitol Hill. You were present for many of those. Can you just give us uh, your view on how significant that relationship is on the other side? And I suppose that unique insight that you have into the access we get that other countries just don't get. Well, uh, Mandy, I, I have had the privilege of, of being involved in 14 of these visits uh, and, uh, in one way or another, six as ambassadors, six when working with uh, Tisha Bertie Ahern. These, these visits are extraordinarily uh, important. Uh, other countries, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, other countries you know, look enviously uh, at the fact that we, we get this, uh, this, this extraordinary access during this week. And um, I, I think it's, 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 it's a competitive place, Washington, despite the relationship that we have, it's a competitive place. We need to work at it. We need to invest in it. We need to be there. So the Taoiseach being there, uh, obviously, throughout the week, uh, and of course, other ministers being elsewhere in the United States and beyond, this, this global environment that we live in, but most particularly uh, the relationship with the United States and centered as it is in Washington and the visit to the president uh, on, 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 on St. Patrick's Day, as well as all the other events around it, including the engagement with, with colleagues on Capitol Hill, this is this is gold, and and it is gold that you know that, that we need to keep burnishing and polishing because uh, we 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 it, it, very few other countries have this. I mean, some other very big countries may have a particular access, but we, given our size, uh, you know, have a level of access which is disproportional, uh, which is not undeserved, but nonetheless, which 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 we need to cherish and manage and make sure that it all works well. It, it, it will work well. This visit of the Taoiseach is going to be 
uh, particularly after the pandemic and the, the disappointments of the last number of years, when maybe we haven't been able to celebrate in the ways we have been previously. Now, this year, the coast is clear again, the Taoiseach is in Washington, and I think we need to just maximise all of this because there is nothing but advantage in it from our point of view and from the point of view of the relationship uh, between the United States and Ireland. Thank you very much for giving us your unique insights and letting us know what might be going on underneath the bonnet of these preparations. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That's former Irish ambassador to the US, Michael Collins. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. Up next, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. Is it a small blip or an ominous ripple? We'll discuss it all after the break. This is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the largest bank failure since the 2008 crisis last week, triggered a major US government intervention to protect the financial system. There, there's certainly a sense of relief for now on this side of the pond, where authorities and major investors are looking at the impact and what impact it could have on Ireland in the weeks and months to come. We're joined now by Howard Schneider, who covers the US Federal Reserve Monetary Policy and Economy with Reuters. Howard, you're very welcome to Taking Stock today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Happy to do it, Manny. Now, it's hard to believe, Howard, that we're here again talking about light touch regulations. Can you just give our listeners a brief overview of the factors that led to the collapse of this, what is termed a niche bank, but still the 16th largest bank in America? So give us your overview on, on what went wrong. Yeah, sure. So this was a uh, uh, seems to be a classic case of what they call maturity mismatch. Um, a lot of short-term deposits came flooding in to Silicon Valley Bank the last couple of years uh, since regulations were lifted a few years ago, uh, and they were putting that money into long-term treasury uh, treasury bonds, which they thought were a very safe investment. Now, if you can hold on to them. Until they mature, it is a very safe investment. The U.S. has never defaulted on a bond and and likely never will, at least in my lifetime, I hope. Uh, But when the Fed started raising interest rates, the face value of those bonds started to go down in value. They were underwater. Uh, Eventually, depositors started to get wind of this started asking for their money. There was a bit of a run, really a a pretty profound run as as Mm -hmm. companies and individuals started to close their accounts. And they were forced to start selling those bonds at a loss. Once that happened, it just cascaded very fast in a a matter of a few days, really, uh, from being a very high flyer to having nothing. Mm. Yeah, as you say, the run happening very quickly. And uh, I suppose, not helped by the fact that social media is now a petrol that can pile on the flames that are already burning. How significant or was it significant uh, in the run on this bank, uh, social media and social media platforms? Well, it was it was uh, social media, but it was also sort of the very close knit community that this bank catered to. This was the the bank to the Silicon Valley sort of venture and and tech community. And when those folks started talking and comparing notes and saying, "Hey, maybe time to get out," uh, it spread real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, some nice reporting uh, on our end, New York Times, others have been following this. It, it was it was quite. Um, kind of a cultural phenomenon almost, which is, you know, why some people were surprised that this has led to really potentially a policy changing uh, rescue of depositors because it, it, it was it was it was niche, not in its size, but in the culture it catered to. Mm. So the profile of the customer base there was significant when it came to the intervention by the Fed. Can you talk us through why it was different? 
Well, it was different because, um, you know, this was the bank uh, that folks in Silicon Valley preferred to use. Uh, if you if you had connections with the venture capital community out there, it was kind of almost a status symbol to be banking there. And uh, by all accounts, the deposits there, the accounts there came with with a little bit of preferential treatment on mortgages, things like that. So you start to start up a company, you get some venture money, you were sort of encouraged to put it there. Uh, and this wasn't like a heartland bank where somebody with a job at the General Motors plant uh, would go and open their kid's checking account, you know. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, the interest rate increases may have had uh, uh you know, an impact on this. Some economists arguing that those interest rate increases that are happening to curb inflation are not without the potential other consequences. So do you think that this development could halt the Fed's plan to continue increasing rates as they chase this magic 2%? Sure. Well, that's, um, you know, it's it's certainly a risk management problem that they didn't expect to have, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, You look back, Fed Chair Jerome Powell was on Capitol Hill testifying just less than two weeks ago now that they may have to go. Uh, in fact, it was just last week. My time, sense of time is slipping here. Tuesday, Wednesday last week saying they may have to go back to 50 basis point rate increases. They may have to go higher. Well, now they've got a competing set of concerns that they're going to be debating. I will I will note that the European Central Bank just went ahead with a half uh, point increase. And if you read their statement, they clearly are putting inflation still uh, at top billing in terms of their priorities and, and kind of their balance of risk sense. Financial stability is mentioned, but uh, littered in there as text, I might very well see in the Fed statement next week about the resilience of the financial system, the strong capital bumpers. Keep in mind, Mandy, all the reforms since the great financial crisis 15 years ago have been leaned towards, oriented towards making banks and the financial system stronger. All the regulators have said there's capital there, there's loss provisioning there, everything's safer to that today. It'd be very hard for them to come out next week and say, well, because this sort of niche-like bank failed, the whole system's going to crumble now, it's not resilient, we got to stop our interest rate hikes. Yeah, and there definitely is a narrative kind of coming from the EU. Uh, there's nothing to see here. Everything's fine. This is niche. But it mm-hmm. is kind of reminiscent of what we were hearing in March of 2008. So Ireland in particular are very sceptical, I think, about this because mm-hmm. we were very badly burned, um, as you know. Sure. And there's a narrative, I suppose, creeping into this, something that you mentioned yourself earlier this week, the socialisation of losses. And that issue of who actually mm-hmm. is going to burden the responsibility for this so who who took the hit in in the u.s for the failure of these these two small but niche banks well let's separate that answer into 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 two parts part a who's actually going to pay off the depositors uh at silicon valley bank uh according to what treasury secretary janet yellen and the biden administration has been saying in the rescue plan they rolled out um and there's a few parts to that um it's not going to be uh, taxpayers. It's going to be fees on other banks uh, once they figure out the extent of losses. Um, now, that's uh, sort of part one. Part two is, does this decision to throw a blanket under all the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank now force U.S. policy to cover all losses forever and anon among depositors at all banks? 
that changes the risk profile of U.S. banking around a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't know what the implications of that are going to be yet. You know, in the U.S., I don't know what the system is in Europe, sorry, but, um, it, you know, any account is insured up to $250,000. There are a lot of depositors. 90% of deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were above that limit and uninsured. Mm. And yeah, what I mentioned earlier, the profile of the customer base being significant, I suppose that's really mm-hmm. what I meant, that they weren't prepared to protect those bondholders. We in Ireland uh, were very badly scarred when the EU decided that they would protect the bondholders and we, uh, the taxpayer that is, had had to... Um, yeah. had to fork out 64 billion so we're we're a little bit emotionally right. and 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 economically scarred by it there is a deposit guarantee scheme uh, of 100,000 euro brought in at that time here so that's, uh-huh. that, that's what happens in Ireland but um I just want to Howard ask you something that's uh, slightly elevated to what's happening now and it's this, this notion that successive US presidents have had a significant hand in deregulation of banking. So the Wall Street crash led to significant regulations being introduced to prevent this and then one could argue that when Clinton came in he de- deregulated some, Trump more. Um, and I wanted to ask, is is that collapse in 2008 registering in the psyche of Americans the way it is here because it whilst we see it as a niche issue it's happening over in America I think there is a lot of nervousness does that exist in the US as well well I think that's still a little bit of an open question um look this is not um if you if you think about the precursors to 2008 so many people were caught up in that um not just from the banking side, but what was happening in the housing market, uh, people had uh, mortgages they'd taken out on homes, and they suddenly saw the value of those homes plummeting to well beneath what the mortgage uh, was. So, you know, people were literally mailing their keys back to the bank saying, sorry, this house isn't worth uh, what I owe on it, so I'm turning it back to you. Uh, that's what started some of those runs down there. Now, uh, I don't think I uh, may be wrong about this, but I don't think the average person in the U.S. was waking up on mm. Monday morning after the Silicon Valley bank collapse saying, hey, I better go take my money out of Bank of America or Morgan or, or J.P. Morgan mm. because it might not be there. Uh, I don't think it was as infectious in terms of the, the sort of public psychology as things were in 2007, 2008. Yeah, well, that, that's a good thing, if nothing else. If you're just tuning in, you're listening. So, oh, let, me, let me add all so, this so far. So far. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening yeah. to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Howard, just back to uh, SVB. Um, some have suggested here that there was no risk assessor in place at the Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Well, um, so uh, over what time frame? I guess that's the thing. One of the regulatory steps, decisions that was made along the way, after the great financial crisis was what we call the SIFIs, the systemically important financial institutions would get those. These are the JP Morgans and the Bank of Americas of the world would get much tighter regulation uh, than the midsize banks that were a sort of a step lower. Now, the cutoff was originally 200 billion. Um, it was dropped to 50. Um, it, it, rather, it was, it was raised from 50 to 200, so you could have up to 200 billion without having to go through yearly stress tests, for example. You were cut back to every two years on that. This is what allowed some of these banks, like SVB, uh, to grow so fast uh, and perhaps have you know, a step looser oversight that applied to the systemically important banks. What we learned was that psychology is a systemic risk. Um, it, was, it was decided that because depositors 
depositor losses at that bank might infect confidence in the system overall that depositors had to be protected. Now, was there was there inadequate risk analysis? There were stress tests for every two years, and their deposits were growing really fast in that two years. Uh, so, yeah, probably they could have used with a little little closer, more frequent oversight. Mm. And the risk management at the bank, by all accounts, was you know not so great because they were, again they were piling long term uh, funding against the short term deposits. I saw KPMG also come out and say that they stand over their auditing of uh, the bank. What does that tell us about the purpose and uh, what's the word, the credibility of these type of audits? Well, you know, I'm not sure how much the audit is is delving into business model and risk issues. An audit is like, can we trust the numbers you're putting in your financial statement? And by all accounts, yes, because here's the thing, uh, and, and it's kind of a, a, a maybe a perversion in how ba- banks are forced to account for what they hold. Uh, all of the long-term bonds that were slowly losing value because of the interest rate increases were in what uh, they called, uh, or most of them were in what they call a hold to maturity bucket, meaning the bank fully intended to hang on to these bonds until they matured, in which case they would have gotten their check for the full uh, face value uh, back from the U.S. government. Uh, but when the deposits started to, uh, when the demands for deposits started to accumulate, uh, they were forced to start selling those. They sold a big chunk to Goldman Sachs at a loss of $1.8 billion. And when that sort of hit the public uh, consciousness, people said, hey, wait a minute, they're actually having to cash these in, uh, which means they may be short of money. Um, and that's when the run sort of started. So, Howard, finally, just to close out on this, what's your assessment uh, in terms of uh, the impact of this? Is it, do you think, something that indicates a systemic shock to the system or is it just a tiny ripple on a niche sector that just relates to technology? I, I, I hate to ask you to make predictions, but I'm going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, I think I, I think this it's going to fall somewhere in between. Um, if you look up sort of up the food chain to the really big players, uh, there's no sense that this is going to infect, you know, one of the one of the large banks like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan. What it might do, in fact, is strengthen them. Uh, if you think about depositors saying, well, I don't trust my community bank. I don't trust my regional bank anymore, even though uh, the interest rates they're providing us are lousy. We're going to go ahead and stick with ones that we banks that we know are safe. Now, that could put some stress on some of the regionals, particularly on community banks that were already having to compete more for deposits. I don't think that develops into a systemic problem. What the Fed did over the weekend was roll out a program that basically let you bring any government debt you had to their window and get uh, a loan for the full value against it. So it, 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 it sort of washed away this problem of face values of bonds declining because of rising interest rates, if that makes sense. You could borrow against the full amount. They hope that's going to uh, alleviate any immediate liquidity concerns, even among the regional banks that might face some deposit stress. Well, as you say, confidence severely tested and uh, we'll watch the space with interest. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Howard Schneider of the US Federal Reserve Monetary Policy and Economics Unit with Reuters. Howard, thank you very much for joining us on News Talk today. Thanks much, Manny. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. 
Instagram. As always, my thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo de Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with all your Sunday newspapers on, on the record. So from Taking Stock, with me, Mandy Johnston, Sloan, August Banachdi, Nafila Porik. <laughs>